0: Coming up on this week's podcast. The light of the world is a transforming light. He takes a spiritually dead, spiritually ignorant person and transforms us into children of light who will perfectly reflect God's glory to a world living in darkness. With Christ in our lives, we're never going to be the same. It's a transforming light. Stay tuned for more.
1: And welcome to another New Hope Chapel podcast. Located in Arnold, Maryland, New Hope Chapel is a vibrant church committed to biblically-based teaching, often focusing on discovering the Jewish roots of the faith. You can find out more about our church at newhopechapel.org. Now, here's Julie Coleman with today's message.
0: Well, last week, Justin started to speak to us, he um, expressed his admiration for Carl's wonderful Um, use of renaissance artwork during all of his messages and um, i was thinking about it as i was sitting there that you know that was a really clever thing that carl did and i thought that uh, i should do something equally clever and then of course justin is really known for all of his wonderful use of technology so what am i going to do and so i expressed that last week when i was making the announcements and kay will banks made a suggestion she said why don't you sing your sermon?" You have a nice, singing voice. And I would have actually considered that idea, except for the conversation that I had had just that morning with little Naomi Hibbard, who is two? Two, and quite a character. She makes me laugh every Sunday. (laughs) Um, I was sitting in the cafe drinking a cup of coffee, and she came over, and part of her Sunday school class, they had made Christmas cards, and she was passing them out to people. And so she gave me a Christmas card, which had a bell on it. And I said, oh, Naomi, thank you, a bell. I started singing, jingle bells, jingle bells. And she said, don't sing. (laughs) I told Justin, it was a bit of a rude awakening. (laughs) So I'm going to take her words as from the Lord. I'm not going to sing to you this morning. Uh, (laughs) I guess my claim to fame is going to be that I actually have um, message notes on the back of your bulletin that you can use. (laughs) That will be my, uh, my big thing. Well, since the beginning of November, we have been looking at all the great I in, in the book of John. Um, and actually, the great I, I was very surprised to see that I thought the I were contained in the book of John, and that's all there were. But um, actually, when Jesus is um, in the boat and, um, with his disciples, I think it's in either Matthew or Mark, but anyway, he, he, uh, he's sleeping, and there's a storm that comes up, and the disciples say to him, you know, wake up, wake up, we're about to, you know, be killed. How can you sleep through this storm? And he said, how can you be afraid? I am. So he actually says it in the other Gospels. Um, And it's a claim to deity just by using those words, I am. Um, And each of the I am's in the book of John actually gives us a different perspective into the character, the person of Jesus Christ. And we learn different things about Jesus from the different things that he claims to be. This week, we're actually going to be learning about the light of the world, a transforming light as it is. And um, this is the verse that we're going to be zeroing in on. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Well, let's pray before we get started. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for this different perspective that Jesus gave when he claimed to be the light of the world. Help us, Lord, with your Holy Spirit to understand what he was met, what he's trying to tell um, when he made that statement. Help us to understand and see him with fresh new eyes, um, this light that came into the world to save us from our sin. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So Jesus claimed to be light of the world. What did that mean? He promised anyone who chose to follow him would be changed forever. They would no longer walk in darkness and they would now walk in the light. So what was he really saying about himself? Well, to really understand, first we have to look at the setting in which Jesus made this claim. Uh, the first thing is that when the day that he made that claim, it was during the Feast of the Tabernacles. And those of you who are regular tenders know that uh, we set up a Sukkot booth during the Feast of the Tabernacles, Tab- Tabernacles, and it happens in the fall. And um, it's actually a celebration of the harvest, and it marks the end of the harvest. And it also commemorated the 40 years that the Israelites wandered around the deserts without a home. They were in tents. And so they set up these booths to commemorate that experience that their ancestors had. Um, and so during the festival, people make these booths, and they make them all over New York City. If you drive through any of the Jewish sections, you can see them out on the um, fire escapes, and, and, um, and they're everywhere, on the streets, everywhere. And the same thing happened in Jesus' day. He didn't have fire escapes, of course, but <laughs> certainly there were booths everywhere, and it was a time where people set up. Well, one of the other things... Um, that they would do was they would light on the very first night. They called it the um, the illumination of the temple, and it happened in the court of women. Here's some pictures of succot that you can see. It's kind of hard to see, but those are booths right there, and this is a picture of a booth that you might see, or you might have seen set up at that time. Well, here's a kind of a map of the temple. And you can see um, where these arrows are placed. This is the sacred part of the temple. This is Herod's temple that would have been uh, what they think it looked like during Jesus' time. And you can see that very first court is the treasury or the women's court. And in that court, in the center of that court, they had these great big lamps. I mean, really tall candelabras, four of them. And they would light them. And so the whole place would just light up. As a matter of fact, it was written somewhere that displays of light went throughout Jerusalem and every courtyard was lit up with their brilliance. And I don't know how exaggerated that is, but it was certainly pretty bright at the temple when they were lighting these candles. And so they had this big light. And at that time, John tells us that they were sitting in that court and the candles were being lit. And you can just picture Jesus pointing and saying, I'm the light of the world. So you kind of get that perspective. Um, So what would that have meant to first century Jews? Because we nearly need to know that to really understand what he was claiming. Well, first of all, that word light would immediately have been associated with God. Light meant God. And and I can give you a couple of scriptures for that. Um, The first is in Psalm 27. The Lord is my light and salvation. Whom shall I fear? And these are, I, I could have given you a million. I'm not going to, but... Um, They're all over the Bible. And the second one, arise, shine, for your light has come. Your light has come. The glory of the Lord rises upon you. The sun will no more be your light by day, nor will the brightness of the moon shine on you, for the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. The rabbis even claimed that the, the word Messiah meant light. So for Jesus to say, I am the light of the world, he was essentially explaining to them that he was God. That's the first thing that they would have known. Second thing that they would have known was that as a nation, Israel was meant to be always a light to the other nations. And um, God had set them apart as a people back with Abraham and told them that he, they were going to be a blessing to all of um, the rest of the people on the earth. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Um, And Isaiah 42, 6 says, I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I'll take hold of your hand. I will keep you and make you to be a covenant for the people and a light to the Gentiles to open eyes that are blind, free captives from prison, and to release the dungeon from those who sit in darkness. Israel was to be a light to the other nations. And as they worship God faithfully and live by his law, the other nations would see and want what they had. That was the deal. (laughs) But they failed. They failed because, in Paul tells, it became a thing of works rather than a thing of faith. And so they had failed to be the light of the world. So Jesus was claiming to be the light that Israel had failed to be. He was the true Israel, and so that's what he was claiming to do. So he had declared uh, so far now that he's God and that he's the light that Israel was, had failed to be. And third, they would have related his words to what they were celebrating that night this whole idea of wandering in the desert, the sojourn through the desert, and God's faithfulness in the journey. And it would have brought to mind the light given to their ancestors in the desert, that cloud of Shekinah glory. This is a reenactment, not a real picture. But it kind of gives you an idea of what it might have looked like back then. Because Exodus 13, 21 says, the Lord was going before them in a pillar of cloud by day to lead them on the way, and in a pillar of fire by night to give them the light that they might travel by day and light. So the Israelites back then and and during uh, the time when they were in the desert, they followed the light from the Shekinah glory. Now Jesus was saying he was the light that they should follow. So you get those three ideas of exactly what he was talking about. The other thing we need to know before we can really understand what he was saying when he was saying that he was the light of the world is that we have to understand the context. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that, but I do want to tell you that these chapters in John uh, 7, 8, and I believe 9 are this big, long conversation that he has with the religious leaders at that time. And they're trying to figure out, is he the Messiah or isn't he? And they're all worried about where he came from because they knew the Messiah had to come from Bethlehem and he's from Nazareth and they couldn't figure that out. And so they were trying to see, well, who is, is he the Messiah or isn't he? And so when Jesus said, I'm the light of the world, he was telling them, I'm claiming to be the Messiah. And that's that's who I am. So now that we know that historical and that contextual background of this verse, let's look at the implications for us that Jesus is the light of the world. Because, you know, you can't be in the light and not be transformed. Um, My sister used to love to bake in the sun. Actually, I did too. I shouldn't just tell her, tell her, it was me too. I mean, you know, back in the days where we didn't know about SPF and we didn't know about, you know, skin cancer and things like that, back in the dinosaur days when I was a teen, (laughs) we used to lather on baby oil and go out and fry. And we would do that Well, my father started getting worried, especially my sister, because she would really tan a lot. And so he, he started finding articles on skin cancer and things, and I was always finding them, like, stuck on mirrors and in the bathroom and in her bedroom because he was all worried about this thing. And it, the truth is, the son does alter us. Our, it alters our skin. I mean, people that spend a lot of time out in the sun, they're weathered. They're, you know, I have a friend who's a farmer's wife and I saw her at my father-in-law's funeral last month and she's my age. She looks about 20 years older because she's out in the sun all day long. So the, it does have this chemical thing that happens. You can't be in the light and not have a change happen. Well, the same thing is true of the light of the world. You cannot be in the presence of the light of the world and not have some kind of a transforming, altering thing happen in your life. So how do we know? Like, what, what, what are these transforming things that go on? Um, Jesus said, he who follows me will never walk in darkness, but have the light of life. So now on the back of your bulletin, if you're interested in filling in the blanks, there's a little outline for the three things that Jesus does to transform us by being light. The first is this. The light of the world transforms us from death to life. From death to life. <clears throat> John used the words light and life interchangeably. He said, in him was life, and that light was the life of man. Oh, I'm sorry. That life was the light of man. I got it backwards. But he used it interchangeably, light and life. Jesus used it in the same way. He who follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So Jesus gives us light. Now, the Bible refers to people who are spiritually dead as they're walking in darkness. Isaiah the prophet said um, this. He said, The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the shadow of death, a light has dawned. Of course, that great light was Jesus that he's talking about. And the people he came to uh, rescue, they needed saving. We all needed saving from the darkness of the shadow of death that we were in. You see, before Christ entered our lives... We were spiritually dead. Paul tells us in Ephesians this. In Colossians, he calls it the dominion of darkness. And he put this way in Ephesians. You were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air and were by nature objects of wrath. So that's the before picture. We were in darkness. We were spiritually dead. We were under condemnation. We were in darkness. And, of course, what we we would desire and God certainly desired for us was that we would be in the light, we'd be spiritually alive, and we'd be declared innocent. Sounds good, but there was a problem. Sin was in the way of that before and after picture. And so, uh, as Paul said this, because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved, through faith, and this not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by works, that no one could boast. In order to take care of that sin problem, Jesus, the light of the world, was sent. He took the punishment of our sins. He earned our pardon and endured that wrath of God so that we could have a relationship with him. And it's a pardon that's offered as a free gift. All we have to do is ask. Jesus said, I have come that they might have life and have it abundantly. When you trust God for your salvation, you immediately enter into this intimate relationship with God that was not possible before um, the sacrifice that Jesus made. These things are written, John tells us, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you might have life in his name. It all starts by believing. Say the word. You'll never regret it. So we were spiritually dead. The light of the world changes us by giving us eternal life, and by receiving His gift of salvation, um, we are permanently changed. We're brought out of darkness of condemnation into the light of salvation. All right. So now let's look at a second way that the light of the world transforms us. Light of the world transforms us. He takes us from being spiritually ignorant to having knowledge and understanding. You see, this word "light" in the Greek, the first uh, one of the meanings that that. that that they would have understood if you said light is actually understanding. We use the same um, metaphor for understanding. You know, I didn't understand, but then the light went on, right? And that's that whole idea of knowledge and understanding. An example of this is found in 2 Corinthians 4.6. And it says, For God made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Oops, I should go back because that's where it is. <laughs> Sorry. Okay, so that's, that's he's talking about the light of knowledge. And the Bible tells us that those who are without Christ are spiritually ignorant. You must no longer live as the unbelieving do in the futility of their thinking. They're darkened in their understanding, separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. So the gospel, the good news of the gospel is veiled to those who are perishing. They can't understand because the God of this age has blinded them. Uh, the minds of the unbelievers, so they can't see the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ. And Paul says this, Their minds were made dull, for this day the veil remains only in Christ as it's taken away. So when we believe in the light of the world, suddenly we are privy to this whole realm of knowledge that we didn't have before. And it, 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 it takes us from not being able to understand, from being spiritually ignorant, to being spiritual people who know the truth the light of the world. But this kind of change isn't as immediate as that first change. First change from darkness or from death to life, that's immediate. It happens right at the point of our salvation. This one is more of a progression. This knowledge happens a little bit at a time as we spend time studying God's word and where he has revealed himself to us. And we know that because Paul told the Ephesians this. He said, I keep asking the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. So these were people who were already believers, yet Paul was praying that they would know Christ better and better. So it's a progression, this knowledge. Um, They continue to grow in their knowledge and understanding. Now, when I was a teacher, one of the big trips that we would make every year was to the Antietam battlefield. We rented those big fancy buses with air conditioning and um, television screens, <laughs> my personal favorite part. But we, <laughs> we'd go to Antietam battlefield, and the group would split, and half of the fifth graders would go to the battlefield first, and the other half would go to the Crystal Grotto's caverns. Anybody ever been there? It's little tiny caverns, uh, not very big, but very interesting kind of these gruff old guys that run the place insulted me every year. I I don't know why we kept going back. But anyway, and then the groups would switch and the one would go to the battlefield and the other ones would come to the cave. So we had this whole plan worked out. Well, the first year we did it, I'd never been there before. And so we went into the cave and they take you down. I think it's 55 feet below the surface. And you're down there. And he said, and he warned you ahead of time. He said, now I'm going to turn off the lights so you can see what it's like, what total darkness is like. Because how often do we experience total darkness? Hardly ever, right? And so we're down 55 feet below, and he turns off the light. Well, you can't see a hand in front of your face. I'm going like this, and I can't see anything. Caught me off guard the first year. Second year, I made sure I stationed myself with one hand on each bad boy's shoulder. Make sure when those lights went out, I had a hold of them. (laughs) That's total darkness. And that's what we were walking around in. We didn't have a clue until the light of the world came, and he revealed truth to us. My daughter um, goes to a therapist in Baltimore, and sometimes I go with her, and this lady has a sign on the wall, and it says, you can't believe everything you think, which is a little disconcerting, but it is true, isn't it? Um, I know uh, Bill Smith, he's not here this morning, but he told me, you know, to him, there's three places where your thoughts come from. One is from your own flesh, you, yourself. One is from God, and one is from Satan. Well, you get these thoughts. Well, where did they come from? When Steve was struggling with um, clinical depression a couple years ago, he would get these thoughts all the time. You're a failure. You're not going to be able to do anything. You're going to lose your job. You're not going to be able to support your family. And he'd get these thoughts. Well, they weren't from God. And he had to be able to differentiate between what was truth and what wasn't truth. Well, that's what the light of the world does for us. He sheds knowledge and understanding. We get it by studying his word and what he's revealed about himself. But he does give us spiritual eyes to increase our understanding. But that knowledge, it's not just valuable for its own sake. There's a reason for it. Like D.L. Moody said, the Bible was not given to increase our knowledge, but to change our lives. That knowledge is not, it's given to change us so we can better reflect God's glory. Like John the Baptist said, he must increase and I must decrease. And that's what that knowledge does. The more we understand about God, we understand it's about him. It's not about us. And we get that more and more um, as that ever-increasing knowledge, that light, takes place. The knowledge is a means to an end. Okay, so we've seen that Jesus of the world changes us from death to life. We've seen that he changes us from ignorant to knowledge. And now the third and last point I want to make is the light of the world transforms us into displayers of God's glory. I don't know if displayers is really a word. Let's assume it is. It just has to be because it's such a, um, it's a good description of what we are. The primary way that word phos in Greek would be understood is physical light, like we would first understand the word light. It was understood by Greeks in that same way, that literal meaning. Well, that's interesting because God's glory is often displayed in physical light. We already talked about that pillar of fire at night, that bright cloud in the daytime, that Shekinah glory that led the Israelites from one place to another. Um, It says when Moses was up in the mountain getting the law, he came down and his face was shining so brightly, he's radiating this light that he had to cover himself with a veil because the Israelites were freaking out. Okay, so you have this idea of this light coming off of Moses just reflecting the fact that he had been in God's presence. Um, The dedication of the tabernacle. When the tabernacle was completed, it was dedicated, and it says that the glory of the Lord came and settled down into the Holy of Holies. The glory of the Lord filled the temple, and that light was an indication of his glory. And when they built the temple in Solomon's day, the permanent tabernacle, so to speak, Again, the glory of the Lord came and settled into that tabernacle as light. Ezekiel had a vision of the light leaving the temple when Israel was disobedient and God's glory left Israel. And, um, and he has this vision of this thing. It comes up from, hovers above the temple, and then it scoots away, and it's gone. And that's in Ezekiel chapter 10. And, of course, in the New Testament, the transfiguration When Jesus is up on the hill and he reveals God's glory, he does it with light. The Bible says that his clothes were like lightning and the disciples could hardly look. And it really scared them good when they watched this whole thing take place. That bright light. And of course, God's glory was displayed at light at Christmas, at the birth of Jesus. First of all, of course, the shepherds getting that announcement. It says the glory of the Lord filled the skies. And the shepherds were very afraid um, because of that light that they had seen. Um, And also, of course, the star that led the wise men into Bethlehem. Again, light, glory of God displayed as light. So God's glory and light are very intimately connected. And according to Hebrews, Jesus showed us God's glory by this. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. Jesus is the light of the world because he displayed God's glory to us. And that's why he's the light of the world. Well, I wonder if in the Garden of Eden, that wasn't something that happened also. It, uh, tell, the Bible tells us that when Adam and Eve were first created, they were good. It was perfect, perfect um, reflection of God's glory. And so I have a professor in seminary, and he wondered if that glory wasn't displayed on Adam and Eve as actual physical light. And maybe that's why they didn't figure out they were naked for a while. It's an interesting idea. I mean, it makes some sense when you look at how light and glory are kind of uh, interchanged. But Adam and Eve, of course, did not continue to display God's glory because they made a bad choice. They chose to disobey God in the Garden of Eden. And I can imagine as they took that first bite of that fruit, the light went out. And all of a sudden they looked at each other and said, hey, you're naked. (laughs) And so now we no longer had that ability to display the glory of God The light would would no longer shine from us because sin was now a problem. Um, And so, but Jesus rescued us from that condemnation of sin. He redeemed us from that. And so now he gave us a new nature, tells us in 2 Corinthians. Well, what is that new nature? that's one of those things that everybody throws around and we're all supposed to know what that means. What is a new nature? You ever wondered about that? I'm one of those people. I'm like, well, what does that mean? <laughs> so I looked it up and, and studied it for a long time. And this is what I've come up with. I think nature is like potential. Back when we were, before we were believers, we did not have the potential to be able to please God. We couldn't do it. No matter how hard we worked, our righteous acts were like filthy rags to God. But now, we, because we are in Christ, we have a new potential. And now we can please God because we're pleasing God through what Christ has done for us. So we have this new nature. And with that new nature comes the ability to reflect God's glory. It says, we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord. So we're called to reflect God's glory through the work that the light of the world has done in us. Um, and one of the tools that God uses for that transformation, bringing us from glory to ever-increasing glory, better and better, it's not good news for us. It's hardship. That's one of the tools he uses to transform us. That's not what we would choose. It comes in many forms. It could come in form of financial hardship, maybe uh, an irritating boss, or even worse. <laughs> Somebody was telling me last night that they thought their boss was truly evil. <laughs> um, Family crises, things that happen in the family, uh, all those hardship things. None of those things are things that we look forward to experiencing, of course. Nobody would pray for those things. But don't be disillusioned when they happen to you because God uses them as tools in our lives to transform us from glory to ever-increasing glory. And so because it's in the struggle that we reach out to him and know him on a deeper level. Isn't that true? You know, We don't pray so much when things are going bad. But when things are going really well, excuse me, I'm backwards, we don't pray so much when things are going really well, but when they start to go badly, all of a sudden we're back on our knees. (laughs) And he wants us on our knees. He wants us to pray. Ralph Emerson Waldo hit on this when he said, people wish to be settled only as far as they are unsettled. Is there any hope for them? And he hit on a spiritual truth there, didn't he? That's really when that spiritual growth takes place, that more intimate relationship gets established with the Lord and we understand better and better that we need him and, um, and that we're dependent on him and that's what he wants. It's one of God's most effective tools and it makes us realize that we're not so self-sufficient as we think. <laughs> so we cling to him like a swimmer clings, the drowning swimmer clings to a life preserver and we go a little deeper. So Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians, Therefore do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary affliction and troubles, excuse me, light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. The light of the world is a transforming light. He takes a spiritually dead, spiritually ignorant person and transforms us into children of light who will perfectly reflect God's glory to a world living in darkness. With Christ in our lives, we're never going to be the same. It's a transforming light. So this year, as you admire the Christmas lights on your neighbor's front lawn or plug in your own lights on your Christmas tree, remember why we put light into the Christmas season. It's to celebrate the light of the world and the ever-transforming light that he is to us.
1: Thank you for listening to today's podcast. We hope it was a blessing to you. New Hope Chapel is a vibrant ministry in Arnold, Maryland. We are a Christ-centered church with biblically-based teaching focused on the Jewish roots of the faith and committed to helping each person discover and use their spiritual gifts. If you're in the area, we would love for you to come and visit. You can find out more information about our church at newhopechapel.org. Subscribe to the New Hope Chapel podcast on iTunes and you'll get the next podcast in your sleep.